A note before we begin. Today's episode includes discussions of homicide. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Today's case is still open. Resources can be found at the end of this episode. Our brains are hardwired to reason things out, to draw logical conclusions from the evidence we're provided. And the more obvious the answer seems, the quicker we are to settle on a point of view. So when someone goes missing, it makes sense to examine the people in their life, to suss out motive and analyze behavior. We find the explanation that makes sense, which is why it can be maddening when the legal system fails to meet our expectations. Even when all the pieces are there, the bar for conviction can feel impossibly high. But as today's case will show, this is a good thing because the hunger for some resolution, any resolution, can lead to grave mistakes. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Thursday, I discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to hear a case that's taken many turns over the past 35 years. It became the perfect example of why the obvious suspect isn't always the right one. It all started in 1980 when a young woman disappeared after the car she was driving broke down on the side of the road. Her name is Sharita Thomas. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Talking about a missing person only in terms of their disappearance does them a disservice. Because as we know, their story is so much more than that. But sadly, there's not much information on the woman at the heart of today's case, Sharita Thomas. 
We know about the night she went missing and the years-long investigation that followed, but we don't know an awful lot about her. Partially because her disappearance happened in 1980, long before the internet turned everyone into an open book. Or maybe it's because the press isn't all that interested in sharing stories about missing black women. But here's what I can say about Sharita. In 1980, she's a 21-year-old woman living with her fiance, William Merritt, and their four-year-old daughter. They have an apartment near Escota, Michigan, a vacation town on the idyllic shores of Lake Huron. The town is predominantly white and very conservative. So Sharita, a young black woman, stands out. Even still, she makes friends, including her next door neighbor, Patricia Bates. On August 3rd, 1980, the two of them have plans to go out. Sharita and Patricia drop their children off at a babysitter's and head to the Hilltop Bar for a drink. There, they spot their babysitter's brother-in-law, Jimmy Nelson. He's a local who works for a logging company, but spends six days a week at the bar, drinking and getting into fights. He's also known to spew racist vitriol at anyone who will listen. Jimmy talks openly about his views and even makes liberal use of the N-word. Needless to say, Sharita feels uncomfortable around him. She and Patricia say hi, but keep their distance. In any case, they're only at the bar for a quick drink. They hop in Patricia's brown sedan and head to the Mikado Tavern for some dinner. But once they're at the table, they can't help but notice the attention they're getting. To Patricia, it feels like everyone in the restaurant is glaring at them. Considering the prejudice in the area, both women figure it's because of Sharita's race. The stairs make Sharita and Patricia so uncomfortable that they retreat to the bathroom. Eventually, they leave the tavern, but not before someone tells them, don't come back. According to Patricia, the women skip dinner and head to a friend's softball game. Afterwards, they return to the tavern, likely to celebrate with the team. But by about 10 p.m., Sharita's ready to go. Perhaps someone made another comment to her, or she was just tired. We don't really know. Regardless, Patricia's not ready to leave, so she gives Sharita the keys to her car, a brown AMC Matador, and draws a map to the babysitter's house. Sharita can pick up the kids, then park the car in Patricia's driveway since they live next door. But not long after Sharita takes off from the tavern, the Matador breaks down. Steam shooting from the hood, forcing Sharita to pull over miles away from home. Soon, three white teenage boys drive up next to her, Sharita, understandably a little spooked, rolls down her window just the slightest to talk to them. They ask if she wants a ride. When she declines, they offer to help fix the car. The young men soon realize that the radiator's leaking, so they pull up some duct tape and wrap it around the radiator hose. As they work, one of the teens sees someone drive by making an offensive gesture. It seems to be aimed at Sharita. He couldn't make out who the driver was, just that he was driving a blue truck. The young men finish up on the matador, but warn her it isn't going to last long. Still, Sharita has no choice. She has to pick up her daughter. So the guys watch as she takes off for the babysitters, hoping that the car can hold out just a few more miles. Later that night, around 2.30 a.m., Patricia gets home. She's expecting to see her car in front of her house, 
but it's not there. She calls the babysitter to check on the children, and she calls Sharita's fiance, William. Sharita never came to pick up the kids, and she never made it home. The next day, as William and Patricia try to locate Sharita, the Escota Police Department receives a call from a man named Frank Perry. Frank says a brown car broke down in front of his house the night before and has been blocking his driveway ever since. The police drive to the vehicle parked on Sunset Road, and sure enough, it's Patricia's. Cops say the interior is all messed up. I'm not sure what that means, but they do find the map that Patricia drew, cigarettes, and the keys to Sharita's apartment. But the car keys are gone, and Sharita is nowhere to be found. The police try to piece together what might have happened based on Frank's account. Here's what he tells them. Around 10.30 or 11 the night prior, Frank heard a car door slam outside his house. When he looked out the window, he saw a brown matador with steam billowing from the hood, pulled to the side of the road. The woman driving, who police assume was Sharita, didn't wait around for help. Instead, she left the car and took off down the road on foot. This would make sense considering that Frank's house is just two blocks from the babysitter's. Frank says that a short time later, Sharita returned with a bearded man driving a blue Ford truck. They pulled up to the sedan and parked grill to grill. To Frank, it looked like the two knew each other. The man tried to help Sharita with the car, but they couldn't get it to start. So Sharita got back into the truck. The pair drove south and disappeared. At first, this doesn't seem like an abduction until the lead detective on the case, Raymond Newt, gets Patricia's account of what happened at the Mikado Tavern and Hilltop Bar that night. Then, the teenagers tell him about the angry driver in the blue truck who waved an offensive gesture. Finally, he interviews Sharita's fiance. William assures Raymond that Sharita would never just leave her daughter with a babysitter overnight. If there was an emergency, she would have called. Wherever she is, she didn't go willingly. At this point, Raymond suspects that Sharita met with foul play and was possibly targeted because she was black. As he talks to witnesses, one person begins to look especially guilty, Jimmy Nelson, the town racist. The police have no physical evidence to go on, but Jimmy lives on the same road where Sharita's car broke down. And according to the Hilltop bartender, Jimmy owns two vehicles, one a reddish-orange truck, the other a blue Ford Bronco. That fact is corroborated by patrolman Alan McGregor, who sees Jimmy driving around in a blue Bronco not long after Sharita's disappearance. Even more incriminating, just a week after Sharita goes missing, the Escota police get a call from a woman who says that Jimmy sexually assaulted her. I don't know if they ever followed up on the allegation, but if true, it shows that he has a history of violence against women. But when Raymond interviews Jimmy, Jimmy says he didn't even know Sharita and that, quote, I wasn't out and about as far as I knew during the time of her disappearance. Now, we know these are flat out lies. Remember, the Hilltop bartender saw him speak to Sharita that night but despite these glaring red flags, Jimmy isn't arrested. Raymond never even asked to see the Blue Bronco, 
because police learned that around the time that Sharita went missing, a federal fugitive was in the Escoda area and his profile checks out. He's violent. His beard matches Frank's description for the man who helped Sharita on Sunset Road that night. And he also drives a blue truck. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem, this podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. After Sharita Thomas goes missing in August 1980, Detective Raymond Newt is left with few leads. But there's one suspect that does stand out, Grant Goddard Jr. He's wanted for unlawful possession of firearms. He has a huge collection of guns, over a hundred in fact. And just 10 days after Sharita goes missing, he attempts to rob a family vacation home north of Escoda. He thought the place was empty. Unfortunately, the robbery went bad and Grant shot the property's caretaker through the chest, killing him. Grant was on the lam ever since. Two months later in October, police find Grant's blue pickup truck abandoned in a national forest near where Sharita disappeared. The truck is stripped, meaning a lot of important parts of the vehicle were removed. To police, it looks like Grant is trying to hide something, evidence of wrongdoing. Raymond interviews people in Grant's orbit, including his son, who tells the detective that Grant was responsible for Sharita's disappearance. To Raymond, it's an open and shut case, but again, no arrest is made because even with the son's testimony, Grant's violent history and the stripped down truck, there's not really enough evidence to prove that he abducted Sharita. There's no witness, no murder weapon, no body. Technically, there's no physical evidence that Sharita was even killed. It's frustrating. Here are two men in the Escoda area with means, motive, and blue trucks. Yet somehow, by the end of 1980, Sharita's case goes cold. For 13 years, her fiance and daughter are left to fill in the blanks, haunted by questions of what happened to Sharita Thomas. Members of law enforcement also struggle to put the case behind them. 
specifically Alan McGregor, the patrolman who saw Jimmy Nelson driving his Ford Bronco. From then on, whenever he saw Jimmy, he couldn't shake the feeling that he'd gotten away with something. Which might be why, in 1993, Sharita's case gets a second wind. By that point, Alan's been promoted to detective and decides to take over the investigation. The police always believed Sharita's disappearance was racially motivated, but thanks to legislation passed in 1990, it's now classified as a hate crime, which means they're able to get outside help from the FBI. Alan starts by following up on Raymond's leads, so he pays a visit to Jimmy Nelson. But again, Jimmy denies having anything to do with Sharita. Alan also speaks with Grant Goddard's son, who told Raymond years ago that Grant was responsible for Sharita's death. But now, his story's changed. The son explains that back in 1980, when Grant shot the caretaker at the Alcona County vacation home, he convinced his son to take the fall, saying he wouldn't get much prison time. Grant even testified against his son in court. So, when police came to ask about Sharita, the son made up the accusation. As in, he fabricated the biggest piece of evidence against Grant, just to exact revenge. The nail in the coffin comes when the FBI finds out that Grant had a solid alibi for the night Sharita disappeared. Which means, the primary suspect in the case is innocent. This must have been incredibly frustrating for Sharita's family, or anyone invested in her disappearance. Back in 1980, Raymond focused his entire investigation on Grant Goddard, based on a false lead. Most detectives might send a cold case to the archives and focus on investigations that are more viable. But Alan never puts away Sharita's file. Instead, he keeps her case in a box directly behind his desk. He makes a deal with himself. Every time he scoots his chair back and accidentally bumps into it, he has to make another call hoping for anything that could move the needle toward justice. And after a while, Sharita no longer feels like just another missing persons case. He says it becomes personal. You become a part of the victim's family. And like any family of a missing person, Alan can't help but crave answers. Someone needs to be brought to justice for Sharita's disappearance. So, in 1995, he returns to the one suspect that's been gnawing at him since August 12, 1980, Jimmy Nelson. Alan goes over all the evidence against Jimmy, and there's quite a bit. As I mentioned, he was proudly racist. He even told his sister-in-law, the babysitter, that he didn't like Sharita being in the apartment because she was black. The bartender at the Hilltop Bar tells police that she once heard Jimmy say, the only good N-word is a dead one. Now, being racist is not itself a crime, but the hateful sentiments behind this kind of rhetoric can lead to violence, and often does. Alan believes that in Jimmy's case, it motivated him to target Sharita, and lest we forget, Jimmy was a violent person. He was known for physical altercations, and was accused of sexual assault just a week after Sharita disappeared. Plus, Alan interviews the Hilltop bartender Shonda, who remembers that after Sharita vanished, Jimmy's racism mellowed out a bit. He started talking to more people of color, like he didn't want to draw attention to himself or a crime he committed. 
This strikes a chord with Alan, who remembers that back in 1980, after he saw Jimmy driving in the blue truck, Jimmy barely took it out again. Alan learns that Jimmy parked it in his backyard and hid it behind two to three feet of firewood. He said that if the cops wanted to search it, they'd need a warrant. It's around this time that Alan decides to pay Jimmy Nelson another visit. Maybe get a look inside that truck. Except he finds out that Jimmy sold the truck a few years back. Either way, Alan never gets to see what Jimmy was trying to hide. It's a shame, but Alan is unbothered. To him, the biggest indicator of Jimmy's guilt is the mountain of lies. Like I said, when Raymond interviewed him in 1980, Jimmy said he didn't know Sharita. He told the FBI the same thing in 1993. But now, in 1995, his story changes. Alan tells Jimmy that he knows Sharita was in the truck that night, it's a lie, but he wants to gauge Jimmy's reaction. Instead of denying it, Jimmy says, okay, maybe I was with her that night, but when I last saw her, she was alive. It's not enough to arrest Jimmy for murder, but it does convince Alan that Jimmy's responsible. Even still, the wheel of justice turns slowly. Because there is zero physical evidence to speak of, it's hard to build a case against Jimmy Nelson. Alan keeps working on the case for another five years. In 2000, the FBI questions Jimmy again, but this time he reverts back to his old alibi. He didn't know Sharita, and he didn't see her the night she disappeared. Jimmy tries to get other witnesses to lie to the police and back up his story. Shonda, the hilltop bartender, saw Jimmy driving his blue truck that night, but Jimmy later tries to convince her that he was in his red truck that day. After the second interview with the FBI, Jimmy invites Shonda to the Hilltop Bar for a drink. There, he brags to her that he fooled the prosecutor in Sharita's case after spending the entire day with him. During this same conversation, he says that he's buying the forested land surrounding his deer hunting camp and wants to give a little piece of it to Shonda, almost as if he's trying to buy her loyalty. When Shonda relays this conversation to authorities, it feels like the pieces are finally coming together. Frank, the witness from 1980, said that Sharita and the bearded man jumped in his blue truck and headed south, which would have been the direction of Jimmy's camp. And just like the blue truck, Jimmy pretty much abandoned the property after Sharita went missing. To Alan, it was as if he didn't want to return to the scene of a crime. In March 2001, the FBI agrees to fully reinvestigate Sharita's case. They sit down with Jimmy for a third time, and again, his story changes. The reason? Jimmy says he visited a hypnotist that morning, and his memory miraculously improved. In this interview, Jimmy admits to helping Sharita with her car that night. He comes clean. He was the man in the blue truck. He says that when he wasn't able to get the car started, he gave her a ride back to Patricia's house, where she retrieved her keys and purse. Then he took her back into town and dropped her off at a brew pub called Wiltz's Restaurant. Now, none of Jimmy's interviews have ever made sense, but this is truly out of left field. For one thing, Sharita couldn't have entered Patricia's apartment because she didn't have Patricia's keys. Two, Sharita's purse was actually left in her own home the night she disappeared. And three, Wiltz's restaurant closed at 8 p.m., hours before Sharita's car broke down. 
once again, Jimmy is deliberately lying about what happened that night. Alan is convinced that if he wants to nail Jimmy, he has to search his camp. Any evidence left out there has had 20 years to decompose. This is going to be a tough search. So he brings in Sandra Anderson. Sandra is a handler for a cadaver dog named Eagle. Canines like Eagle are remarkable. They're often able to uncover human remains hidden under several feet of dirt or in other hard to find places. But there's a reason Alan reaches out to Sandra specifically. Eagle isn't any ordinary cadaver dog. Eagle is legendary. In 1993, Sandra rescued Eagle when he was just a regular puppy headed for the pound. He was a Doberman mix with floppy ears and brown-red markings. Sandra immediately began training him and to her delight, Eagle was especially gifted. Pretty soon, they were uncovering clues on high-profile missing children cases and featured on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries for helping to convict a biochemist of murdering his wife. They even got a request from the Panamanian government to locate mass graves. After turning up bodies, Sandra was honored in public ceremonies and Eagle was named a national hero. The press called him Canine Sherlock Holmes. But Sandra said she wasn't in it for the heroics. She did it strictly for the satisfaction of helping grieving families and providing people with answers. So when Alan reaches out in 2001, she's happy to help. In late fall or early winter, Sandra meets with the Escota police officers at Jimmy's camp. She assures them the Eagle can do magic. Yet the officers say it's hard to tell where Sandra ends and Eagle's supernatural abilities begin. The pair move like a well-rehearsed team and it's remarkable to watch. Sure enough, on the second day of the search, Eagle turns up several bone fragments. Alan is thrilled. He calls up Sharita's mother and daughter and tells them that soon they'll be able to put Sharita to rest. After 22 years, he feels like he finally found a hint of what happened to her. And with her remains in hand, Sharita's family can give her a proper burial. He can prosecute Jimmy for murder and get the justice that Sharita deserves. Alan says, I felt like everything we were doing at that point was coming together. But later that winter, the FBI tests the bones. The DNA doesn't match Sharita's. Instead, the tests show the remains belong to three different people. Eagle might have just unearthed the dumping ground of a serial killer. In late 2001, Escota police sent the remains that Sandra and Eagle found off for testing. In the winter of 2002, Detective Alan McGregor and his team learned that none of the bone fragments belonged to Sharita Thomas. Alan is devastated for her family, but overwhelmed by the evidence that Jimmy Nelson might be responsible for multiple homicides, enough to classify him as a serial killer. Alan wastes no time in getting Sandra and Eagle back to Jimmy's camp and the surrounding forest. They resume their search in April, 2002. The first couple days are uneventful, but on the third day, Sandra calls an officer over to a muddy creek that Eagle's searching. Now, the officer had just searched this particular creek bed the day before. 
He'd been on his knees, rummaging through the creek, and he was absolutely sure there was nothing there. But before he can say as much, he watches as Sandra crouches down. And then he sees something strange. It happens fast, so he's not quite sure if he can trust his eyes. But Sandra's hand passes by the bottom of her pant leg, like she's reaching toward her boot. He doesn't think much of it, until Sandra tells him to look at the ground next to her boot. Sure enough, there's another bone fragment, a knuckle bone. The officer begins to wonder, did Sandra pull that bone out from her boot? That night, he lies awake in bed, unable to get Sandra's sleight of hand out of his mind. If he told Alan, it would devastate him, not to mention call into question the thousands of cases Sandra got convictions for. But he can't stay silent either. So the next day, he tells a young lab technician what he saw. To his surprise, the woman lights up. She also has her suspicions about Sandra. So when they're back in the woods that afternoon, they agree to watch Sandra like a hawk. Again, Sandra stops at a creek and tells the officers to check the spot because Eagle indicated more remains. As the lab tech gets closer, she sees Sandra reach toward her boot again. The technician wastes no time. She grabs Sandra's closed fist. A tug of war breaks out and the two women start shouting at each other. But the lab tech is determined. When she finally pries Sandra's hand open, there's a bone inside, which is when they realize Sandra Anderson has been planting evidence this whole time. When Alan hears the news, his stomach drops and his head goes numb. He knows that tampering with a crime scene can spell certain doom for a case. It can even be used to get the defendant off scot-free. In a second, 20 years of detective work goes down the drain. An hour later, Alan is putting cuffs on the world's most famous dog handler, dragging her out of the forest and into a squad car. Sandra is outraged, like a villain from a TV show. She says, do you know who you're dealing with? Soon, they find out exactly who they're dealing with. The police discover a bag of stolen human bones in her car and even more at her home. It's a nightmare. And the consequences go far beyond Sharita's case. So I really wanna take a second to address how damaging they are. As one lawyer said, frauds like Sandra taint the whole system. For one thing, there were at least two murder convictions that rested on evidence provided by Sandra. And now those convictions had to be overturned the state would have to re-prosecute both cases. But remember, Sandra took part in hundreds, maybe thousands of cases in the US. We don't know how many times she planted evidence or how many innocent people are sitting in prison convicted for crimes they didn't commit. For her part, Sandra pleads guilty to obstruction of justice and falsifying material facts, including the planting of bones she gets two years in jail. Even though she may have started her career with an honest desire to help, it seems clear that success became more important. For Alan, it's total betrayal. He was desperate for clarity, and just when he thought he was getting somewhere, the rug was pulled out from under him. These kinds of things can happen when a case drags on for years without any headway. 
police become desperate for clues, and people like Sandra prey on that hunger. Alan says, we wanted to believe so badly. I guess it was just too good to be true. Even though Jimmy Nelson's camp ends up being a bust, Alan is convinced that he had something to do with Sharita's disappearance. In his mind, Jimmy had motive, opportunity, and a blue truck. He was at the hilltop bar with Sharita, so he likely knew her plans. And he lived on the same street where the car broke down. But the question remains, without Sharita's body, will it be enough? Alan is willing to find out. In 2004, 24 years after Sharita's disappearance, he files charges against Jimmy. He's finally arrested. And a whopping six years after that, a jury convicts 58-year-old Jimmy Nelson of killing Sharita Thomas. He's sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. It's a big moment for Alan. It took 30 years for him to close this case. It spanned his entire career, from patrolman to seasoned detective. He tells the news, we have the right man and justice is done. But, and this is a big but, there's no body, no witness, and no confession. The only evidence is circumstantial. Sure, Jimmy has means and motive, but in this case, it wasn't enough for a murder conviction. So in 2012, the Michigan Court of Appeals reverses the decision and Jimmy is freed on bond. They say, quote, Jimmy Nelson may know how she died. He may have been involved alone or with someone else in her death, but it does not permit a reasonable inference that he caused Thomas's death. For Sharita's family and for Alan, the reversal is crushing. There's so much evidence against Jimmy and he seems so guilty. But the court cites this quote, the purpose of the reasonable doubt standard is not to make it harder to convict guilty people, but to prevent the conviction of the innocent. And on the one hand, I fully understand and agree with that principle. When something awful happens, we often want the quickest explanation, which means sometimes we overlook anything that contradicts the story in our heads. Like when Raymond became so focused on Grant Goddard Jr. that he completely overlooked Jimmy. Or when Sandra Anderson exploited people's desire for answers to burnish her own reputation. She may have planted false evidence, but she also gave police exactly what they needed for convictions, so no one questioned her track record. Which is all to say, the reasonable doubt standard protects us from ourselves. It keeps us from turning one tragedy into two and convicting the wrong person. On the other hand, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the complexity of nobody cases like this one. I've personally experienced the difficulty of these cases, and I've interviewed experts like Tad Tobias, a former assistant United States attorney in the District of Columbia and an expert in nobody homicides. Tad spent a considerable portion of his career discussing the validity of nobody cases that are purely based on circumstantial evidence. He talks about how these cases are statistically more likely to be won in court because the prosecution has to present so much more compelling evidence, even if it is circumstantial. So even without a body, a suspect can definitely be guilty. 
And in Sharita's case, there's been no shortage of suspects. Which brings me to February 2014. At the time, Jimmy had already been out on bond, but that month, both the prosecutor and the defense asked that the charges be dropped completely, overturning his conviction. Because recently, new evidence turned up. Now, unfortunately, it is filed under seal from public view, so I don't have specifics. But the appeals court says the evidence implicates another person as the perpetrator of Sharita's death. Which surprised me, because even without evidence, it seemed like Jimmy went through so much trouble to obstruct the investigation. He misled detectives, he hid evidence, and he tried to get witnesses to lie for him. But let's take a look at this from another perspective, that of someone who knows they look guilty even if they didn't commit the crime. Because of his views, Jimmy is a suspect from day one, even before Alan McGregor saw him in that blue truck. It's possible Jimmy was acting on edge because he was nervous about being blamed for Sharita's death. So he lied low and denied ever knowing the woman. What's more, Jimmy was interrogated 13, 15, even 20 years after Sharita went missing. Because of his addiction to alcohol and the sheer passage of time, it's entirely possible that he couldn't remember what happened that night, which might be why his story kept changing. In fact, the defense argued that a lot of what Jimmy remembered of that night was from what others told him over the years, including the investigators. For instance, Alan said that he knew Sharita was in Jimmy's truck. It was a lie, but might have led Jimmy to make up a story to explain it. I'm not suggesting that Jimmy is innocent. Even if he's not the person who actually took Sharita, his hateful rhetoric is harmful and enables violence against communities of color. The point is that his evasive behavior has more than one potential explanation, which is why the burden of proof must remain incredibly high in cases like this. Regardless, Sharita deserves justice. The person who actually hurt her who likely even killed her, deserves their day in court. And her family deserves the peace of mind that comes with knowing that person is behind bars. I really hope Sharita's daughter doesn't have to wait another 30 years for an arrest. And as complicated as it might be, I hope there's still a chance to bring the right person to justice. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Sharita's case is still open. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Sharita Thomas, contact the Escota Township Police Department at 989-739-9113. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. 
Disappearance is stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Ben Caro, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.